Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CFD's weekly podcast, best podcast in the world. Uh, this week, we are joined by Quinn Perot. So I think uh, Quinn will probably be familiar to lots of people listening. Uh, he's that guy that has that cool machine that when you go to the <laughs> IFX External London Summit, you press all the buttons. But he's got done many more impressive things. Uh, he was the founder of Axie Trader, uh, founder of Traction Fintech. So, uh, Quinn, maybe for people that do not know you or aren't familiar with what you've done, uh, can you just, just give a brief intro on who you are and, and what you do? Cool. Um, thanks, David, and thanks for the invite. It's a pleasure to do this. So, my background was originally in IT, and uh, in around 2006 in Australia, I just sort of, by pure chance, uh, stumbled into a role at City Index, didn't know what CFDs were, did, had never worked in the financial markets, and just a friend of a friend called me in for some IT help, and um, fell in love with the finance and derivatives and trading industry much more than I was in love with IT. So um, that sort of led to uh, helping set up and, and be one of the founders of, of Axie Trader a couple of years later and um, worked there until 2014 and then uh, took, a, took a break for a, a year or two and then uh, with my business partner Sophie Gerber we founded Traction Fintech so um, it's a company to help uh, with regulatory reporting so um, OTC derivatives in Australia and EMEA and MIFIA in Europe and yeah that's what led us to having the fancy machine with all the buttons <laughs> which funny story I actually have, uh, I have one in my gym so this year I'm going to break a record <laughs> okay well we're all looking forward to that <laughs> um okay so i mean you mentioned you've been been in the industry now for almost two decades um i mean right the, the most recent news that i wrote was looking at a ban on marketing in spain so i think it's probably not as um you know, apocalyptic as as that sort of implies uh but it's, it's i think it's still it's still bad and i think there's a kind of sense that i get particularly when you speak to people who are um focused mainly on europe that there's this like ever like regulatory creep and the industry is a bit like you know the proverbial frog in a boiling pot that is slowly slowly being killed basically um however at the same time you know, things seem to be going pretty well. So, I mean, if if you look back on your career so far over the past couple of decades, what sort of changes do you think regulations have brought about, and and what do you where do you see things going? Yeah, well, look, um, I, right from the start, I feel like the CFD industry sort of went from. Uh, potential crisis to potential crisis so there was always something looming over the horizon that that the doomsayers uh you know thought was going to destroy it so shortly after i got in the industry it wasn't so much regulation but we had um you know we, we had the housing crisis in in the u.s uh caused by derivatives but not cfds and you know that took out a lot of more traditional brokers um then you know CFD specific stuff we saw some client money protections come in in Australia that everyone said would destroy the STP model where essentially there were regulations that client monies had to stay in the 
in the uh, client money account, which on the face of it seems like a prudent, responsible thing to do. But then when you think, well, hedging your client is also a prudent, responsible thing to do, and you couldn't use the client's money to hedge that, where it you know, looked like a, a lot more brokers were going to be forced to take more risks. Um, we saw in Australia ASIC stopped issuing licenses for a long time, so it was almost impossible to, to get a license there. Um, and appropriate appropriateness tests for clients. So, uh, you know, the regulators coming out and sort of saying, well, these products aren't appropriate for everyone. Um, and, you know, the, then again, not a regulatory thing, but we saw the Swiss National Bank crisis and the knock-on effect of that. So that was, uh, for those younger listeners, um, there was... There was essentially a peg where the Swiss National Bank was was holding uh, the Swiss franc at, at a level with the euro artificially, and then they stopped one day, and um, it was about ten percent off where it should have been. So it instantly, you know, market forces gapped um, at about ten percent, which is an enormous gap, um, which took out uh, quite a few brokers and, and ate up liquidity cause quite a crisis in the industry uh leverage restrictions obviously a very big one um so first in in europe and then in australia and um, and at all these things you know i um I've, a lot of my friends are in the, in the industry i go to all the events i read the news everyone was sort of oh you know that's if the industry's only got a few more years or the good days are over um, but if I look back at the size of the brokers where I used to work and friends of mine, you know, 10 years ago or more before these restrictions or crisis happened, they were much smaller and much less profitable. So um, things have got harder, but through that, um, there's been no drop off in client demand. You know, I think the clients still still want to trade, obviously. And the fact that it's made it harder has probably made the brokers stronger. And, uh, you know, to a degree, I think it's been a barrier to entry. So there probably aren't that many more brokers than there were 10 years ago, but maybe there are more clients. And I remember in, you know, in the early days, um, shortly after we set up Trader, other brokers were literally um, setting up, you know, on, on a credit card. <laughs> they were getting authorized on someone else's license perfectly legally. They were going and, um, you know, the, some of them came to AxiTrader and got a, a white label, which I think then maybe didn't even have a monthly fee or cost us $500 a month, which we passed on. Um, and, you know, got a website and, and they were a broker, fully legitimate broker, bank accounts, taking deposits, ASIC regulated. Um, and it's just not that possible anymore. You know, you need several million dollars to start a broker so i think in in some way those crises and difficult have made the strong stronger and made it harder for new entrants or, or for the weaker ones yeah no definitely i would say that is uh one of the trends i sort of see playing out again i think particularly in particularly in europe like the idea that the 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 pay to play now is just so much more expensive than it was that yeah, I don't. I don't know how that side of the industry, the smaller sides of the industry, if you want to call it that, can really continue. Um, at least you know, getting a Sysic license and so on. Um, 
the other thing I was going to ask you know, as a sort of follow-up to that, I think another trend I see is that you have a sort of divergence in how in how brokers are operating. So if you look at the bigger players in the UK, so IG, CMC, um, like Plus 500, they serve, they're sort of staying in the same markets, but they're diversifying their products up. So if you look, they're doing sort of listed derivatives, things like that, stocks. Uh, but then you have other players in the industry who are more doing expanding, let's say globally, and maybe even completely ignoring Europe, right? So if you look at like XM, if you look at XM's revenue in Europe, it's tiny relative to, I mean, relatively tiny compared to how much money they make elsewhere. So um, is that a particular trend that you see happening? And and I mean, where do you see the industry heading in the next couple of years do you think there'll be consult like one of the things that I, i've heard since i joined i sort of joined i became more aware of the sector which is like five years ago at this point a bit more than five years ago that was when everyone was uh you know about to kill themselves because of asthma <laughs> um and one of the things everyone said because that that would happen as a consequence of that was there would be like consolidation and um i actually don't think you really saw it I don't think it really happened, and people still still now when I speak to them are going, "That's going to be a thing that happens." But I don't know if you if you think it will, or if you have any other thoughts there. Yeah, um, so a couple of interesting points there. Firstly, about diversification. So oh, it's 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 interesting looking predicting what products or platforms a client would want, you know. And uh, if someone had asked me. 15 years ago when, when I first saw MetaTrader 4 or, or started using it or, or you know, being on the other side as a broker, if, if people had said, look, MetaTrader 4 and F, and the major FX pairs are still going to be the most popular product in you know, 15, 20 years' time, I, I wouldn't have believed it. But it still is. You know, we've seen uh, innovation in platforms and innovation in products and they haven't necessarily stuck. I think there's been uh, trends, you know, if you, um, a couple of years ago, meme stocks were, were a big part of some of the trading. Um, and then, you know, we've had, um, you know, we had binary options and a boom in that and some restrictions and closures. And then, you know, we've had crypto being popular at first and then sort of going in the background and then, um, you know, being, being popular again in, in, in the last few years. Um, but generally, I haven't seen a sort of killer app of a, of, of a product. You know, it's still the same um, effects and indices. It's because I think what a lot of traders, not investors, but, but traders, what they want is something with, with low spreads that's open most of the time and that that moves around. And, you know, foreign exchange does that as, as a purely sort of tradable product. Uh, without too much complications, you don't need to do too much research. There's not too many surprises. You know, there are some events to watch like non-farms and PPI and so on. Um, so, yeah, I think on products, you know, maybe crypto and crypto CFDs is, is here to stay or grow. Um, you know, I think we've seen the back of binary options. Funnily enough, not not because of binary options, but just because of the practices of the firms that were were um were offering them to so the actual underlying product um you know i think uh has been offered by 
Chicago Mercantile Exchange. It isn't really that particularly uh, special or scary, but it was, um, I guess it was a favourite product with some of the less scrupulous brokers. Um, and then the, the second part of that question was consolidation. So, yeah, I mean, mergers and acquisitions has been one that's been very, very small in the industry. You know, in um, in the sort of other part, like the fintech, regtech industry that, that Traction Fintech's at, we see companies buying each other all the time and, and rolling them up. So, you know, um, Standard & Poor's bought uh, IHS Market, They'd actually bought one of our competitors, a company called Capitec. Um, another one of our competitors had been um, bought and and rolled up um, into the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, um, which had bought part of ICAP. And then recently I was seeing NASDAQ by a company called Adenza, which was a function of actually a, a merger uh, between a company called Axiom SL and um, and a back office provider, and you know this is off the top of my head. Uh, there are a lot more brokers I know of, and you know, um, I mean, the first one I worked at, uh, City Index had had bought out the um, another company, uh, IFX that we'd been a part of. Um, I haven't really seen many other ones than that. You know, occasionally you get a broker that's been bought out by a some large hedge fund or investment fund, but there isn't the traditional consolidation where one broker's buying another, which is unusual. And, you know, maybe that's a fact of personalities where <laughs> a unique set of people. Um, it's also can be a very profitable industry. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think there's always the, the case where companies have identified a great um platform or product but need more capital and they, you know feel that they would be be a better part of a bigger business so it, it it has surprised me um but the only kind of broker sales that i've seen go through lately are essentially someone buying a, a defunct broker for their license okay great well yeah on that point on, on binary options i always found that kind of funny that people um you know like oh these terrible binary options is like well it's not their fault. Yes, yeah, you're the, you're the ones who are selling them. So uh, uh, yeah. Um, okay. Well, um, I mean, we, we, we've sort of touched on some of this already. But do you think do you think some of the problems we've talk, talked about here, whether regulatory or or, or you know, it could be other facts as well, um, are going to make life tougher for for brokers going for? I mean, what sort of problems you, you you kind of have? I guess quite a good on the ground um, view of of goings on at, at brokers so what sort of problems do you see them facing at the moment so yeah i mean you touched on one before with spain and actually um my my oldest son works in the industry now and he was asking me about what what i think about uh spanish regulators effectively sort of banning or cracking down on cfd advertising um and look that that's an interesting one i think um you know, being regulated in in Europe uh, brings, you know, uh, obviously you have ESMA as a peak regulator, and then your local, um, you know, your, your local regulator. Spain, I don't think is that big a market, and I don't think their um, 
the regulator actually has that much sway within ESMA. I think if it was uh, the German regulator BaFin um, that was getting upset, or perhaps the Dutch one or the AMF in, in, in France, that would be more of a concern for uh, regulatory change with within the EU. Um, there's definitely regulation on the horizon that's going to make things uh, more technically difficult for, for brokers. So one of them is, is a mere refit, which is uh, next year um, in, in April in Europe and then later on in the year in the UK. Um, so we're going to see a massive change to reporting um, and then that will follow on in, in Singapore and Australia as well. And a big change is that uh, the transaction reporting and, and derivative reporting is moving to an XML format. So the old um, submission of CFDs, w- which was easy enough to do manually if you were a small firm, that's going to be going and all that uh, file submission and, and returns is in an XML format, which is... Um, it is a better format, but it's much more technically complicated. So you're seeing a, a lot more complications again. Um, you know, for the larger brokers, that they'll be able to handle this. It adds more of a barrier of entry. Certainly doesn't change the landscape much, but it's just it, it's going to be more of a cost, more of an effort, more people in operations or more people in IT. Um yeah, the other other stuff is just restrictions on on advertising. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure everyone has frustrations with with Google. Um, obviously, adding you know where you have restrictions outside a regulator, it can be quite frustrating. As um, you know, I don't really think they know what they're doing for financial products. So I hear quite a lot um, that they've ban people's ads that are actually where they have a license or they're actually within the, the uh, Google's terms and conditions. And personally, we've seen that ourselves, advertising trade reporting services, that, you know, we'll, we'll get our ads will get disabled from Google uh, because we're, we're advertising unlicensed financial products, which are clearly not. Um, but you've got someone effectively acting like a regulator, being a gateway to the internet to a large degree, as Google is, um, putting these controls and restrictions and, and, you know, even if they have the best intention, they don't really have the experience of regulating the financial industry and regulating the advertising. So I probably see more challenges there as well. Um, But I think the industry will still be around in five years' time and I think (laughs) it will be stronger. (laughs) Okay. Well, maybe we can touch on a few of those points. So, from from, I think one of the you know one of the problems I face when writing about the, the this industry is that I you have to sort of be a bit of a specialist or, or have some kind of surface level knowledge of lots of different things. Um, whereas, you know, obviously each individual vertical within a company can be really complicated. So, you know, if you're dealing with like payments in Italy, that's probably in and of itself quite a complicated problem. Maybe it's not, I don't know, but just, just hypothetically. So, like, if I look at some of the, the regulatory stuff you touched on, I mean, EMEA is just completely alien to me. Uh, it's not something I've had to work on before, really looked at when writing about it. So, I mean, can you can you talk about what that actually is, first of all, and, like, what, what the, I mean, what, what are brokers doing now and what would what is the sort of change that you described? I mean, practically, what would that, would that just be more bureaucracy, basically? And, and the, the follow-up question to that, right, is, any, I think if you look at uh, 
a sax like this, which is actually quite developed, um, uh, it's sort of like any other industry, when you get more regulation, it can actually be welcomed by bigger players. So if I look at, say, um, again, if we look at, say, the ban on advertising in Spain, that actually might be a positive for someone like, if I if I look at, the, if I was, if I was uh, compare it to the UK, right, like, it might be good for someone like IG Group or Capital.com because if I, if I search anything, they've done so much on SEO that, you can become like a what do you call it? You know, an unsolicited uh, lead or whatever. So, I suppose my my follow up question to that is like when you ha- when you see these sorts of changes like that like you described with MA becoming more uh, complicated, do you think that it acts to sort of push out smaller players again and sort of create more consolidation, or is or do you think they'll just find a way? Yeah, so uh, just a little bit of background on on what EMEA reporting is. Is um, back in the in the uh, U.S. housing crisis or global financial crisis, as we call it in in Australia, or credit crunch, as it's sometimes called in in the U.K. Um, back with uh, housing and and derivatives and Bear Stearns and so on. Um, so. The big problem there was with OTC derivatives and uh, there was a problem that firms were essentially had these trades with each other on their balance sheet. So large banks had trades on their balance sheet that weren't transparent and weren't properly marked to market. And the whole financial industry and the banking industry is built on trust and and a certain amount of transparency. So you know that that, um, you can trust that you'll get the money from Bank of America tomorrow and, and that they're good for it and that their assets and liabilities add up. So that's that's what brought in uh, trade reporting or at least the, the EMEA side, um, which is looking at um, counterparty exposure. So essentially what, what the regulation is, um, is a broker has to report all of its trades uh, that are derivatives every day because they aren't easily visible on an exchange. Um, so they go into a certain format and they go into a, a government regulated database run by a third company called a trade repository. Um, so up until now that can be submitted as a CSV and um, after next year that, that will be a XML file which is if anyone's familiar with HTML it's it's a format more like that. So if, if you were a broker and you did two trades similar to yesterday, you could probably open up yesterday's CSV in Excel and change a f- few fields of that data and send it off to the trade repository. Not that, that we would recommend that, but there was that easy level potentially. And now things are really going to have to be um, developed you know, with, with proper coders to output your data in that proper consistent format. Uh, or you're going to have to use a a third-party company like like Traction that will do it for you. And the the the, the second part of it, um, look, when when this regulation first came in, um, you know, the, with trade reporting in Australia in two thousand and um, two thousand and fifteen, and we were talking to the brokers, often old friends or colleagues. You know, and they were like, "What? We have to do all this extra work, and we have to pay for each line." And I exactly used that. I said, "Well, look, on on the on the advantage, it does make 
your existing infrastructure more valuable. It increases the barrier to entry. You're not going to have these, you know, um, one or two of your staff leave and start up their own broker easily and become a competitor. So, so we use that as the silver lining to the cloud. And I think with the Spain one, yeah, maybe. Or, um, you know, I don't know if any of the larger brokers actually are licensed or regulated in Spain or can somehow get around that. Um, but I, I guess my, my, my point there was more just when you have this sort of, even with the the change you just described in EMEA, any kind of change like that, that adds some sort of layer of bureaucracy makes it more difficult. And so I suppose my, my point is that when you have ever increasing amounts of regulation, it just makes it more and more difficult for for new people to enter the market or or for smaller players who are already in the market to, to keep going. Like I, I know that I spoke with someone probably a month and a half ago who was just saying how loads of people in, or his perception was quite a lot of people in the industry basically is getting to the point where it's like, it can't be bothered to do a lot of the operational stuff <laughs> and because it's just becoming more and more taxing and so looking for some kind of either to get out or um, merge with someone else or something like that. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts there, but, um, the, the other point I was, yeah, the other point you, you, you mentioned was, um, was basically Google being almost like a proxy regulator. Um, so, I mean, first of all, can you talk a bit about what that actually, in practice, how, what, what happens? Is it just a case of like blocking ads or is it more complicated than that? Um, and is there any kind of way around that? I know that there's similar stuff with cards, card companies as well, like. Yeah, so essentially um, Google has set policies about financial services and uh, in those policies they specifically mention, you know, what you can and can't advertise and what you need and in, in some cases you need to upload like proof of um, of a regulation or certification in the particular jurisdictions. Now, on, on the face of it, you know, that, that sounds like a very good and fair thing to do. You know, they're pr- protecting the consumer. But it shouldn't be done by Google. Um, you know, Google could certainly uh, comply directly with um, with either existing regulations or, a, you know, specific request from a regulator. But um, I think Google has overstepped and... Uh, you know, they, they do actually, in in some cases, make it quite a bit harder um, than what the regulation stipulates. There's also a huge scope for them to misinterpret the regulation and the way that they have applied it. As, as I said before, we've seen it personally, where our ads have been um, have have been disabled because we've mentioned something like, yeah, we've said. Uh, you know, regulatory trade reporting, um, our, our platform directly extracts the data from MT4 and MT5, which which we do, right? But that's not an enticement to trade <laughs> because they just have a very simple algorithm that will say if they mention these, automatically ban it. And, you know, and the amount of frustration to get to a real person who would read it logically and go, oh, yeah, you're not, right? Um, you don't need to be licensed because you're not offering a trading thing. Or, you know, if we mentioned, um, you know, CFDs are reportable trades, we'll report them for you. Like, that would automatically get banned. 
And so, so that's the first thing is it was just clumsy as you expect, you know, regulators have a lot of experience and, and a lot of knowledge and a lot of highly paid people who understand the financial markets, understand the law and understand how to apply it. And that's not Google's forte. Um, the, the second thing is, you know, when you have a, a third party essentially controlling um, being the regulator, it potentially creates an unfair playing field. You know, what if there was a certain product um, or provider that Google seemed to like more? And, yeah, you, you know, if... I'm not saying they would, but, you know, say if uh, Google got into a deal with one of the, the largest brokers and, he, you know, they did a merger with the parent company of Robinhood or something, and they're like, well, Robinhood's okay, but... Everyone else has to apply to these rules. It's it's just a danger, and and yeah, that, that's why we have regulators, and that's why we have antitrust laws, and that's why we have competition laws. But um, I I do hear it has a lot of frustration from people, and it's generally it's not why should I have to live by these rules? It's that the rules are clumsily applied. Where do you, I mean? Where do you think that comes from? Like, because because if you say. If you took the example you gave, right, where they ban your ads uh, from showing up, clearly someone has had to put something in place to say, okay, if if uh, enter if derivatives is entered, then block this ad. You know, some 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 kind of logic like that. Um, so someone has had to put that in place. Yeah. Do you think that comes from? I mean, maybe we're entering like entering conspiracy theory territory here but, but like where where does that actually clearly that must come from somewhere well, do you think that's just concern about their brand or look the the question is um have the regulators asked them to do this and i've never seen anything publicly about it and in fact you know if i was if if I was asked, you know, running ASIC or running the FCA, I would have actually said, look, back off Google, let us do our job, right? If people violate these policies, then we'll find them. Um, you know, then, then we'll put the other restrictions. We'll have it in the law. Like, you know, it's it's, it's like a vigilante. You're, you're a policeman. You don't want people going around shooting burglars or, or hunting them down or, or lynch mobbing someone who's accused of a crime, right? You have a process and, and you're the law and the courts and, and you do it. So I um, probably they've been asked by some regulator or possibly they thought they were, if they didn't preempt it, then they might get asked to do more who knows because on the face of it they're doing themselves out of revenue when 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 they say um you know no you can't advertise that ad and they turn it off they're losing they're losing money right they're, they're cutting their own throat which is un, unusual for a company to do so that's something i've been curious about as well whether yeah whether they decided to do it themselves whether they specifically were asked by the regulators i've also not heard um, whether the regulators are happy about it or whether some of them share the frustrations that I've mentioned, like, hey, you know, back off, let us do the regulation. And, um, you know, if we want you to stop something, we'll tell you. So it's a, it's a mystery <laughs> un, unknown as yet. Yeah. Well, there's, um, there, was a, there was a great series about two years ago from that the FT did on um, 
It was actually on the on the porn industry where they basically have a similar thing, but with with cards companies, and um, they were effectively like dug into like everyone in the industry was was telling this journalist like if you actually go back to the the absolute root cause of what is stopping things from happening is always a card company, um, and effectively it was almost like a card company had over time because it's such a difficult industry to regulate globally, it's almost like they had become kind of like the indirect global regulator as a consequence of just being in the, in the, as a kind of position to, to block people from getting access and so on. Um, but I think that the unfair playing field you mentioned, or, or sort of like way it's applied, I, I mean, I can see it just from going on the internet, right? So I get, I got ads for quite a while. It's sort of stopped now, I guess, maybe because they ended their campaign, <laughs> but like from, from an offshore broker, uh, I think doing crypto or something or something like that, but it's kind of hard to understand how that should be that gets through. It's like some rat faceless company in St. Vincent, uh, and then you speak with people who are based in, you know, based in some in a jurisdiction which is let's say more respectable and regulated properly and all that stuff, and then they're getting loads of loads of shit from the from Google. Yeah, so, don't don't yeah, get me started on that unfair playing field for crypto advertising so you know if um i think i started watching us tv for a while with a with a vpn um i would have a vpn on for netflix or something and i'd I'd watch my youtube and so i'd get us ads and you know coming and telling matt having Matt Damon come and tell me, what am I waiting for? And I'm going to get left behind, you you know, and the ads there, I would like, if you were a CFD provider in Australia and you did that, like, ASIC would be all over you. And they're targeting the general public, you know, so so that that was a shock. Um, I think, you know, to all CFD providers around, it was very restrictive in, in Australia as well. And suddenly... Uh, yeah, yeah. In in the US and other markets, you had these mainstream stars. Very, you know, there were no real risk disclaimers or balance or any of those other things that it's supposed to be in CFD advertising. It's just like, what are you waiting for? <laughs> yeah, buy Dogecoin, you can miss out. You know, yeah, be a millionaire from that. And the, the, yeah, crypto dot com and FTX and yeah, and yeah. Uh, I mean, we still sort of haven't seen. Where that goes, finally, is still another twist in it. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean that that is. Um, I think on one level that is a branding thing where, for whatever reason, crypto. I mean, to me, crypto is. If you look at the pure play crypto brokers who came into the industry, it's just like I look at it and I'm just like, this is just the same as what CFD brokers do. It's like you bringing someone in, and then it's a bit like you know a company offering stocks. It's like you bring them in to try. And, on socks, and then you try and shift them over to some kind of leverage product, and it's like with crypto, you go on Binance, and it's just trying to get you to punt on Bitcoin. But then, actually, what we all need to do is use leverage to trade uh, what do you call it, perpetual futures or something like that. Um, but they did, so, I think they did such a good job of, sort of branding themselves as tech, new thing that's happening, that people kind of didn't realize that was what was going on, maybe. or pretend or just were happy to ignore it but yeah i mean you look at 
I mean, I, I hate to keep talking about it, but like, the, if you look at the Spanish ban or the or the ban in France as well, right? Like, Etoro has been a has been a sponsor of uh, a football team in France for like three years now or two years, even though ostensibly France you're banned from advertising uh, CFPs in France, and it's. I mean, it, you know, one one lesson I guess you could take from that is that it's good to add other products because then you can get around uh, marketing restrictions. I mean, I get stuff from IG all the time in the UK. Like, I was used to have this massive ad in the tube station I go to in the morning being like, invest in invest in yourself with IG, and they would have none of the risk warnings or anything because, because uh, you know, it's, it's just stocks and it's you're signing up with that investment company. So doesn't count or something like that anyway Uh, so that i think that's an interesting approach and a bit of a side topic but um beer companies have taken that with uh zero alcohol beer so if if you'll notice the zero heineken zero or the, the carlsberg zero um i don't think those companies have invested in advertising the zero alcohol beer because it's that popular because they make that much money out of it. But it looks, the bottle that they advertise looks almost exactly the same and they can get the Heineken brand out there, right, anywhere they want because it's zero alcohol, right? So all the lovely uh, yeah. things they want about the Heineken brand, you're like, oh, Heineken's great. And then you go and order a normal full-strength Heineken. So <laughs> that's that same kind of thing is that advertise the stocks. But, <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah. That's, that's actually... Um... You're right, because that, that happened in Russia as well. Russia banned, this is a few years ago now, but Russia banned, um, I think, I don't know if it's all alcohol or just beer, but they ad, they banned advertising of, of, I think, either beer or alcoholic products, and then all of the beer producers <laughs> just started to advertising that zero, zero percent lager. Yeah, it's probably still so only like they, one or two percent of their sales, but possibly 50 percent of their, their marketing spend. <laughs> I'd love to see the, the real statistics on that to see if, um, yeah. If that's actually what what they're deliberately doing, yeah. Um, but yeah, look, of course, I mean, a smart move from the beer companies and smart move from from the brokers. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, m- moving on to, uh, to to something a bit different because uh, I think we could get I, I could I could uh, actually I mean maybe briefly because otherwise we're going to get bogged down on this. Do you have any thoughts on sort of prop trading? Is that something that you see growing or or propping up more? Um, because that seems to me that seems like another way around some of these restrictions. Because it's like in, you know, in theory you're not actually trading anything, so you don't have to meet any of the risk warnings or any of that kind of stuff. So, look, I think that's something that becomes popular now and then. So, prop trading as well. I put copy trading in it, um, and you know, some brokers sort of promote programs where you do it educational course and you know you go along and you trade the company's money obviously um yeah it it it's hard to be a trader i think we all see the risk disclaimer warnings that actually it was one of the things i didn't mention uh you know these warnings you see on the website saying like 95 percent of clients lose money that was another thing where everyone thought that this the sky was going to come down on them and no one cares you know it's still like i thought yeah you've got this thing saying you're probably going to lose on on your site so i think uh trading is really hard you know obviously um a lot of people would want to do 
prop trading. I think it's also um, more complicated from a regulatory perspective. Uh, so yeah, I, I I don't. Yeah, it'll probably always be there and always be fringe in in my opinion. Interesting. Um, all right, so moving on to something something a bit different. What sort of changes do you see coming for tech providers like like yourself, like Traction, um, to the CFD industry? Yeah, so we're seeing a lot, the regulators getting involved a lot around operational resilience, um, and you know part of it was this uh, the expectation that the war in Ukraine would would cause a lot of hacking. Um, and you know, people being really worried about their infrastructure, and part of it being based on you know, real life events. But essentially, regulators around the world um, have realised that tech infrastructure can be very important, um, and so th- there are moves to actually regulate uh, infrastructure companies so providers of infrastructure to the financial markets. And in some cases, like in a, in a very small scope, that's the case already in places like Singapore. Um, but we've got a Digital Operational Resilience Act coming in um, in, in Europe, and uh, you know, it, it's still being worked through, but essentially that may mean that... Um, companies like Traction or companies that provide bridges or hosting services to financial products uh, to a degree license themselves. And again, the same, same things apply to that. Look, it's, it's a little bit scary. Um, will, it, will it be executed right? It should take out some of uh, you know, the, the uh, dodgy or inexperienced or in, incapable tech providers in the industry and then again it makes it a harder barrier to entry so the established firms like like traction um will probably be an advantage for us yeah we'll already be doing 95 percent of of what the regulators are asking and it'll set a higher standard which you know will lead to to more stability um of, of providers and, and more stability of the um, financial services themselves, especially ones like you know, MT4 providers and online safety providers where it's 24 hours around the clock. You know, a few minutes outage can be um, devastating. You're processing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of trades and orders every day. So IT is becoming more and more important and that's on the radar of... Um, yeah, the European regulators and the US regulators, and and probably more broadly, all all over the, all over the world. So is that just is that just a sort of cyber security type thing, or have I misunderstood what you said? So, um, not just cyber security, but basically, um, you know, having proper infrastructure, um, following proper procedures, um, but most of it would be around. Cybersecurity and um, you know redundancy, backup, those kind of things. All right. Well, uh, maybe to finish off, we can talk about uh, sort of other other products, other OTC derivatives apart from CFDs, because I know you guys work with some other products as well. Um, can you talk about that? I mean, what what other interesting things are you seeing in the market? Yeah. So. Um, we, 
yeah, obviously we we report uh, all OTC derivatives, and, and in fact some exchange trade derivatives as well and, under Amir. But um, we see, firstly to start, there is another type of CFDs. So uh, contracts for difference are also used by the electricity industry. They're still technically the same product, but they essentially um, use it to lock in an electricity price and then the contract is for the, the difference of wholesale electricity prices and the price they entered into the contract at the start and they sort of revalue it and they pay it out every year. So it's very interesting, a completely different type of CFD or use, but still a CFD. Um, we see credit default swaps coming back. So the guys that sort of caused, or, or, or yeah, yeah, those ones. So I remember when we got our first credit default swap to um, to report, it was quite exciting because, yeah, I read up a lot. I, I was working in the CFD industry at the time, um, you know, of the whole crash and Lehman's and everything, and, and you know, I read the big short and very interested in what happened. And I was kind of on the outside. We saw the market swings, but we weren't fundamentally part of the problem. Um, and, yeah, it's very interesting to actually uh, watch our team work out how to report credit default swap and, and you know, work out the components and pricing and the, and the way they function. Um other interesting ones, I think what one you mentioned on our earlier talk was turbos, which um, we have reported, I think. And, you know, there was talk where maybe they would be popular, but um, es- Esmer, I think, came out quite quickly and said, if any brokers are thinking of using turbos to circumvent the leverage restrictions, then think again. <laughs> um, it'll come down pretty quick on you. Um yeah, so that those are the the main products that we've seen. Yeah, I mean, and is uh, are the CDS? Um, is that? I mean, who is trading that? Isn't I think of that as more like a, I suppose, like an investment bank type product. Yeah. So, um, so traction as well as CFD providers, we have uh, banks and funds, a few electricity companies as our clients. So from memory, it was probably a bank. Who, who was reporting that product through us? And are we at risk of another uh, 2008 cell crisis? Look, I'm pretty sure they reformed that, didn't they? Didn't they like? The, it's the same thing with binary options. Credit default swaps are fine. <laughs> Collateralized debt obligations are fine. They're good products. They were run. Um, it, it was the way in which they were run. So there was no transparency. Um, things were just done at OTC and then um, the rating agencies were incredibly conflicted. You know, so, so the, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the actual technical nature, they're great products to, to, to bundle a, a whole lot of assets and put them together in a tradable product and have a system that controls the risk on them. It was that it was all the sort of lies and cheating and incompetence that was built into <laughs> into that system where and then you know sold to sold to you know pension fund teachers pensions funds which had a huge amount of money but you know weren't the smartest guys in the room and things were getting um rated AAA when, when they weren't so and and I knew that before we got them so it wasn't like oh hold on we're in for another financial crisis I'm like interesting to see these products have come back but 
they always should have because it wasn't you know that they got tarred with the brush but they weren't really the problem the problem was um was poor practices and the rating agencies yeah no for sure i think that's that's usually the case it's, it's easy to blame uh blame a product when it's usually actually the people behind it um i mean on and so on on some of the other products you mentioned i suppose my, my other question would be in general do you see any room for innovation here i mean i if i look at say um crypto right one of the things i mentioned was uh they, they call it like a perpetual future i mean to me it looks a lot like a cft so i don't really know how they've been able to to kind of offer that um i don't know if you have if you know, first, if you know anything about those, but more broadly, I mean, do you see any room for like new products being developed, or do you think that whatever happens, as if they bear any kind of similarity to CFDs or whatever it might be, that they're just going to get whacked immediately by the regulator? Yeah, I mean, some of the the ones that we see in relation to um, the crypto and and others is uh, fractional shares, so fractional shares being run um, essentially as a derivative so it's confusing because there can be a genuine sort of stock split or merger or M&A activity that can cause a fractional share but most times the way it's marketed is um, you know get into Microsoft but only for $30 instead of 300 or, or or whatever so a smaller way of trading a product essentially using something similar to a CFD um, but without the leverage to trade something much smaller, right? So, um, you know, someone who might be putting, you know, might have one of these accounts where you just put $10 a week and get into trading and then have no leverage. Well, what, yeah, you don't want to be restricted to only buy shares that trade at under $10. So that that's an interesting one. Um, and I think, you know, again, new product, we see some confusion maybe some stockbrokers offer that and don't really know the obligations that that's an OTC derivative very similar to a CFD and has the EMEA reporting obligations. Um, and then the one you mentioned, yeah, perpetual futures, I think I think a lot of people would be confused when they see um, Matt Damon advertising uh, get involved in, in crypto and they come on board, they might actually be trading a perpetual future because what they want, like, you know, 99% of them don't actually want a Bitcoin to to use it, 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 you know, even though it has a lot of difficulties and costs around using it. They just think it's going to go up in value. So it's actually very suitable for them to have a CFD or a perpetual future, right? The costs are a lot lower. The, um, the you know, it doesn't have to... Um, doesn't have to be put on the blockchain, right? They don't really need that. They just want exposure to the price. So they're not necessarily a bad way of doing it, and there might well be a better way of doing it than um, than putting it on the blockchain. But I think some brokers in the crypto space have grown very fast and have huge marketing budgets might not even know that that's an OTC derivative and that it's subject to reporting and subject to essentially all the other regulations of, of a CFD. And, you know, occasionally I've looked at products being advertised and, you know, and I've said to my business partner, like, what what is that? Is that a derivative? Is it the underlying shares? And we've come to the conclusion of perhaps the broker doesn't even know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, the innovative ways of doing the same thing. 
um, which is good in that, that you know perpetual shares that that's very interesting because CFDs the whole sort of main use was to get more leverage and taking that down as a way to trade something small with no leverage is quite interesting and and then yeah perpetual futures seems like a perfect way to trade crypto if you're not really an enthusiast on the blockchain and you're not actually wanting to take that crypto and buy a car or a house with it um but just hope it goes up in price then yeah you're going to get uh much less complication and fees for for both you and the broker yeah yolo that's uh one of those kind of things isn't it? but uh, <laughs> i mean that's uh yeah the the the, the the single stock, um, well, sorry, fractional shares was something that we'd always see at my previous company where we would not be able to, well, firstly, it would just be frustrating because you would see like a ostensible competitor uh, offering um, offering offering what they would call fractional shares. And then you'd look at it and you're like, that's not a fractional share, it's just a CFD <laughs> on the share. Um but uh, and then the other thing was that they would be able to offer, um, like in the UK, you can't offer US, I think US ETFs because they don't produce a like a kid or something, I think something like that. And then you would see your, you know, some companies would be offering it, and then you'd look at it and be like, that's not, that's just a CFD on the product. So, yeah, definitely an in- interesting way of, of doing things. Um, Anyway, maybe to, to finish off, I don't know if you have any kind of final thoughts or things uh, people should be thinking about or aware of. I just never never count out the CFD industry. Get stronger and stronger. It, it takes yeah, takes more blows than a professional boxer and still gets up fighting. It's been, been a pleasure being part of that industry. Great. Well, uh, that's a good and uh, upbeat way in which to finish. So, Quinn, thanks uh, very much for joining me. And hopefully we can chat again in the future. Thanks, David. <laughs>